understand that in your confessional reading, you've come to Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism, so that's what we'll examine together this afternoon. Please turn there with me, page 562 of your book of praise. On Lord's Day 49, we continue to go through the Lord's Prayer, focusing in on the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll see how this petition is, at first, something that might seem almost foolish and naive, especially with how the Catechism describes it, but it is not any of these things. It is not only possible, but it's truly wonderful. Let's read Lord's Day 49. What is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will, And without any murmuring, obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. After the sermon, without any further announcement, we will sing our Amen song of hymn 49, the first two stanzas. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved in Christ our Lord, as fall has begun here in British Columbia, many of us are looking at our backyards and our gardens, seeing what has been produced and wondering if it was all worthwhile. All that time spent planting and weeding and watering, or at least that's what we would do if we were purely logical beings, purely logical, but I don't think I've ever met anyone who treats gardens in this way. To, to keep track on a spreadsheet, everything that was spent, comparing it to everything that was produced. I looked into it, I did this example, and tell me afterwards if this is you, because then you'll be the first person I've met to do this. So, I, I spent a dollar on watermelon seeds, I spent $3.50 on the water to water them, I spent five hours over the course of the summer, estimating, let's say, $10 an hour for my time, and then I produced five watermelons. So you do your calculations, that's, that's a little under $11 per watermelon, which is more than you would spend at the grocery store, and so therefore, now I'm very angry that I wasted my time growing watermelons. I don't think anyone does this. We don't, we don't try to quantify and compare, because there's just something so wonderful about gardens. Flower gardens, vegetable gardens, just having one. No matter how much or little was produced, it's wonderful. It gives you a sense of contentment to be surrounded by this natural and yet at the same time cultivated beauty. There's, there's something so wonderful about gardens, and there's also something so wonderfully theological about gardens. There are two gardens that are central to the story of our salvation. There's the Garden of Eden, and there's the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, our first father, the head of the human race, he was faced with a choice. Obey or disobey God. Obey God, follow God's will for his life, 
live forever, or disobey and follow his own will and die. If only Adam had taken the time to pray this quick prayer, thy will be done. Instead, instead of denying his own will, Adam gave in to temptation, and he doomed himself and the rest of humanity to a life of sin and distance from God. And in the other garden, in in the Garden of Gethsemane, there, our Savior, the new head of the human race, he was also faced with a choice. Flee from the suffering, the misery, the humiliation, the terror, and the pain of the cross, or obey and drink the cup that the Father had given him. Drink the cup of wrath that God had prepared before him. And Jesus, unlike Adam, he did take that time Scripture says that he prayed so long in the garden that his disciples who wanted to pray with him, they all fell asleep. And the words of that prayer, probably more words than these, but this was the main uh, thrust of the prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was in a garden that our first father acted in an earthly weak and sinful way, giving in to temptation, following his own will, and that doomed humanity. And it was in a garden that our Savior acted in a heavenly, strong, and perfect way, resisting temptation, following the will of his heavenly Father, and this obedience saved humanity. We here, we have a choice. That same choice that, that Adam had, my will be done, or thy will be done. And we can respond in an earthly way, or we can respond in a heavenly way. The choice is ours. And it is our true desire, as children of God, saved by the obedience of Jesus Christ, that we would respond in the way of our Lord, as he taught us in his prayer, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. And we'll examine first the distance between heaven and earth, and then the nearness of heaven to earth. What is the third petition? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may deny our own will, and without any murmuring, obey your will, for it alone is good. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Now, it's all too easy for us to look at these words, to hear these words spoken, and judge these words to be naive or even foolish. Because there are some fairly extreme lines in here, aren't there? Let's examine a few of the more extreme lines together. Grant that we and all men... And so this is a petition not only for the church, but it's about the entire population of the world. This world that is dominated by evil this world that is under the tyranny of Satan, a world populated by stubborn, self-willed people, this doesn't seem too likely. There's some other ones, too. Grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Even if this was a petition only directed at the church, How could we possibly be as faithful as angels in heaven? These beings of immense power and holiness and servitude. These beings unstained by sin. Naive, we say. 
there's clearly a distance, clearly a difference between heaven and earth. There's clearly that difference between heaven and earth, that difference between the two gardens. So let's ask, is, is this world more like Adam or more like Christ? Well, the sad answer must be invariably that this world is more like Adam. This world seems to belong more to that first garden than to the second. That's the reality of the world, but what of the church? What about that church? We, we would love to belong to that second garden. So is this true for us? Well, we have to ask, who is the us here? And you might say, well, you just said that. It's, it's the church. That's, that's who we're talking about. But here's the question. Are we talking about the church or are we talking about the church? Because there is a difference between the two. There is this local congregation, Sardis Canadian Reformed Church. All of you here together, you make up the church. That is one of the definitions of church. And then there is the universal church a church far larger than this congregation. And this distinction between the two is sometimes known as the visible church and the invisible church. And now, I say this knowing that there are probably some people here who don't like those terms. That's okay. Historically in the church, there are those who have fought against these specific terms. They say you shouldn't speak of the visible church and the invisible church. They say, just speak of aspects of the church. There's the visible aspect, there's the invisible aspect. Yet, it is valuable to distinguish these two. It is valuable to do so, it is right to do so. Let me explain. There is absolutely unity between the church in heaven and the church here on earth. After all, Christ has one church. He is the head of one church. Our Savior, he is not limited by time. And so this church, it, it unites together believers today with men like Abraham, with women like Ruth. Abraham is my brother, Ruth is my sister in the faith. Our Savior, he's not limited by space. He unites believers in North America with believers in China and with believers already in glory. I have Chinese brothers and sisters. I have brothers and sisters who are already worshiping God in heaven. And our Savior is not limited by sin uniting us in this church who still struggle with sin with those above who are now freed from sin. Our Savior is not limited in time, in space, or in sin. And so it's one church. But here's the thing. We are limited by all of these things. We are limited in these ways. We are limited in time. I cannot meet together with the Apostle Paul. I can't sit under his preaching. He can't sit under my preaching. We're limited in space. The church is spread all across this world, and that divide between this world and the next world is a real divide. We're unified with them in heart, but not in body. And we are limited by sin, and that is the biggest limitation that we have that our God does not have. That's that's the biggest divide in our churches, in our local congregations, on this side of glory, on this side of perfection, we struggle with sin. We're called to peace because there's a lack of peace. There's a lack of unity. On this side of glory, too, there's, there's a lack of purity in the church. 
that's found in, in a lack of purity based on the daily sins of weakness that all of us commit. There's even a lack of purity in the sense that there are wolves in the sheepfold. And I hope and pray that this is not true for this congregation here of Jesus Christ, here in Sardis, but we are warned by our Savior, that this is the reality for some of the congregations here on this earth. There are wolves in the sheepfold. And so the third petition in this prayer, it seems impossible for the church here on this earth, whereas it is second nature for the church in heaven. There is no doubt that this is a complex issue. The church of Jesus Christ is one, and yet it's many, It is united, and yet it is divided. It is pure, and yet it is still sinful. And it is this tension between what we are and what we wish to be, this tension between what we are and what we are promised that we will one day be, that is the very reason for this petition in this prayer. Heaven seems so far away from earth, and it can all seem so hopeless. We pray this petition And we think, I'm not sure what good it will do. I'm not sure there's any hope that we will fulfill this petition. We look at this world that is filled with genocide. Genocide of the unborn in the womb here in Canada. The ongoing genocide that has been ongoing for who knows how long now of the Uyghurs in China. We look at this world where in so many different places, in so many different ways, Christianity has been made illegal in other ways, in in other places, it's been strongly discouraged. We look at this world with authoritarian states such as Russia and China, even politicians in this country who respect such leaders. So how how can we be anything but hopeless when this is the reality around us? How can this petition be anything but naive? This world is so far from heaven. But examine with me once more the petition as explained in the Catechism. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we, this is where we must stop for now, grant that we, before we turn our eyes to the Chinese, to the Russian, to the Canadian governments, we must turn our eyes on ourselves. Before we accuse others of not following God's will, we need to check our own heart first. And this is where our reading comes in. And though we read all of Isaiah 55, I want to focus in with you on verses 8 and 9, at least to start. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, many of us are, are, are very familiar with these verses, and they can be used to explain away why bad things happen to good people. We, we use these words. We will quote from this passage when a tragedy befalls a friend, and we say, oh, well, God has a plan. We don't understand it because, well, his ways are higher than our ways. And they're not wrong with this conclusion, God works amazing good out of evil, and we don't always understand God is so far beyond us. That is absolutely true. But this can also be used to put off the efforts of sanctification. We can apply this then not only to tragedies, but to anything that we think is a little too hard that God has asked us to do. 
being holy like God is holy? All right, that's impossible. God's ways are above our ways. We have no hope of holiness. So we can apply it in the wrong way, and, and also, that's not even really the true meaning of the text. The true meaning of this text is not about the mysteries of God's providence. Drawing extensively here on the work of a Reformed professor and office bearer, Dane Ortland, we can see that the full passage, in context, it tells us a different story. This is not a statement of God's mysterious providence. This is not a statement that, that can absolve us from holy living. But rather, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, is a statement about God's compassionate heart. Let's look at these verses in context, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what does this mean? In context, we are to see God as far surpassing us in terms of his mercy in terms of his compassion. Ultimately, this passage is not about the mind of God or the plans of God, but it's about the heart of God. We start with, with the earth. We start with our hearts. And we look and we say, I was, I was particularly loving today, and so God is like me on a good day, but just way better. But when we think this way, we reveal that our view of God's heart is tiny, and this view isn't at all accurate. His thoughts are not our thoughts even on a good day. His heart is not our heart. His ways are not our ways. And not just because we're a, a few degrees off. No, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Infinitely better. And though this text only speaks of, of God's mercy as being infinitely, infinitely above ours, it, it applies to all of God's perfections. All the perfections that, that we are to emulate. And we can think of this in terms of another very well-known verse, Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? That's a good description of your will and not my will be done. We don't naturally want to do these things at all. And so, before you weep and you wail and you gnash your teeth at the sins of others, at the sins of the wicked world, and there is a time for that, we all have to examine ourselves. So let's do that through Micah 6 verse 8. So are you acting justly in your life? Are you acting justly? Is your goal for justice to be done? Are you more interested in being comfortable or in enacting justice. Justice for those around you. Justice for the people that you love. Justice for the people that you hate. Justice for the people you never give a second thought to. Is your goal, is what you are working towards with your energy, with your money, with the skills that God has given you, is your goal for them to be treated fairly? And are you willing to be treated poorly so that they receive justice? 
at any cost? Or are you like your first father in the Garden of Eden, casting blame on everybody but yourself, pointing fingers at those closest to you? And are you loving mercy? Is your goal for mercy to be shown to the downtrodden, to those who are struggling, to those who are suffering? Are you more interested in policies or in people? Are you, uh, when, when someone confesses their weakness to you, when someone asks you for help, is it too much effort for you to show them kindness? Is it too much for you to meet someone where they're at and walk with them out of the mess, out of the entanglement of their sin? Are you willing to look like your Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and love and suffer for those who need you? And then are you walking humbly? This can be a very difficult one. This is one that honestly I struggle with. Are you walking humbly? In your eyes, who's right? Is it you? Is it always you? Every single time, do you always have the right thought and everybody who disagrees with you is automatically wrong? Are you willing to listen to the voices of others around you and be convinced that maybe, just maybe, in this instance, you might be wrong? You don't have to be tossed about like a wave of the sea, but are your ears opened? Is your heart softened? Is your heart a commander that says, my will be done, do it now? Or is your heart a soldier listening to the voice and the will of King Jesus saying, yes, Lord, your will be done, not mine, but yours? This is the calling of the third petition. Your will be done. But God is in heaven and we are on earth. His ways are not our ways. There's such a divide. So how can we possibly begin to truly pray this petition? Our reading actually makes it seem even more impossible than it was at the start. How can we live out this petition in hope rather than in hopelessness? Well, it's because even though heaven is so distant from this earth, it is also much nearer than you might think. That's our second point. Now, you may have noticed something interesting about the theme for this afternoon. It flips around the wording of the third petition, at least the third petition as it's written in the ESV and, and in the Catechism. The, the, third, or the, the theme here, as in heaven, so on earth, instead of the more, the more typical on earth as it is in heaven. And though this is somewhat awkward wording, it is in fact the original. This is the literal translation of Jesus' words. And in the homes of members of my congregation, perhaps it's the same here in Sardis, I have heard the praying of the petition in this way, especially from some older people. And in the little bit of research that I've done, it seems to come from the Dutch version. And bear with me here, I've done some research. I'm going to try to pronounce it right. Please correct me when I'm, uh, please correct me after, because I'm sure it'll be wrong. Gelijk in de hemel, also ook op de aarde. That's, that's beautiful. That's what it is in the Dutch. It's, it's that way, but it's, it's flipped. Like it is in heaven, also on the earth. Now, you'll have heard the phrase, lost in translation. 
And there's an important element to this petition that does get lost when we phrase it on earth as it is in heaven. It's nicer English. Technically, it means the same thing. But our minds, they latch on to the order there. And so we start on earth, on earth, and then we move to heaven as it is in heaven. Earth first, and then heaven. Earth, because that's where we are, and heaven, which is like where we are, only better. But no, that's not the case. Isaiah 55, God isn't like you. I'll repeat that. I don't want you to get that wrong and and think that the minister said God does not like you. Not true. God is not like you. He's not you, just, just a little bigger. He's not you, just a little better. No. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is not like you. His will is not like your will, and so we cannot start on earth, but in fact we must start in heaven. Your will be done as in heaven, so also on earth. But how? How can we do this? If God is not like us, how can we then be like him? How can this happen? Here's the good news. God isn't like you. God will never be like you. But he is working. He's working so hard. He's working constantly. He's working powerfully to make you like him. In coming down to earth and remaining true God, Jesus Christ acted and still acts today in a way as to bring us up to heaven. Not just with our souls, not just with our glorified bodies, not just after our earthly lives, but right now. Right now in our minds and in our wills. Your will be done as in heaven, so also on earth. The Holy Spirit, sent from heaven above, he dwells in our hearts, and he is hard at work changing them, changing our hearts, changing our minds, changing our wills, so that they match with God's heart, with God's mind, with God's will. Now, one of you might say, well, that's that's not fair. How is the Holy Spirit changing my mind consistent with my freedom? I thought Christianity was all about freedom. What about our Christian freedoms? Being set free from sin, now we're, we're somehow enslaved to God who sort of indwells our mind and, and changes it against my will? If, if I'm not free to do my own thing, freed from sin and slavery, freed also from God and his spirit, then I must be a slave. That's not true. Let me present you a, a parallel example here. Imagine a drug addict on the street. You don't have to go too far. Think of East Hastings Street in Vancouver, although I'm sure you can find drug addicts closer than that, perhaps in the tent villages in Abbotsford and Chilliwack. But but imagine a drug addict on East Hastings, sitting there on a blanket, dirty and hungry. In some ways, if you look at it in a certain way, this man is freer than all of us here. He has shed his social norms, he has shed conventions, he does whatever he wants, he doesn't follow the laws against illegal drug use. What a free man he is. But in a truer way, and I think you all understand where I'm going here, this man isn't free at all. If you would ask him, if you, if you snapped your fingers and your wish was granted, what would your life look like? Well, as long as he's in his right mind at the time, he would not wish for more drugs. He would want to be free. This man, 
Free in some ways is a slave. He is a slave to his addiction. And this is exactly the same for us. We are, all of us, sin addicts. At first, we think that we have this wonderful freedom to break God's law. God says not to steal. Well, with my freedom, I've decided to steal anyways. God says not to commit adultery. Well, what's freer than sleeping with whoever I want to sleep with? But that isn't you talking. That's your sinful nature. That is your addict voice speaking. True freedom, real freedom is found in following God's law. That is what sets you free from your addiction. True freedom is doing what you've been created to do. A drug addict is set free when he goes to rehab and he follows all of the rules. When he follows the rules of not injecting or snorting or drinking any substance. When he follows the rules of going to therapy. For a recovering addict, freedom can look an awful lot like legalism. There are so many rules. But it's these rules that actually set us free. And this, this is the freedom that the Holy Spirit is working in your hearts. It's a freedom that is obedience to God's perfect law. Because you see, even though, even though heaven is so far above us, so far away, it also exists right now, this very second in our hearts. Even though heaven is a million miles away, it is closer than anything ever could be. God's will in heaven is transferred down to earth. It's applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When that happens, something beautiful begins to happen. Our wills begin to resonate with his will. But this isn't just a, pro- but this isn't just a process where we can sit back and, and we can just let the Spirit do all the work. We are called to pray this petition and we are called to truly mean it. We are called, quite literally, to lose ourselves in God. To lose ourselves in God. Not my will, O Lord. Not my will. I can't desire what I desire. I have to lose myself. I no longer desire what I desire, but I desire what you desire, O Lord. I no longer want to depend on myself, on my own strength, on my own idea of right and wrong, but I depend on you. I throw myself at your feet, and I ask you to lift me up, to strengthen me, to teach me, to instruct me, to guide me. I just want to serve. I want to serve as the angels serve. That's what our catechism says, as willingly as willingly and as faithfully as the angels in heaven. They are in heaven, it is true, but it's also true that heaven is in us. God's kingdom is being set up in our hearts and we must serve willingly, faithfully, joyfully. For when our eyes are opened, when our addiction is conquered, we will love who we are in our new nature. We will love it and we will love the one who set us free. We will pledge ourselves to him because we owe him a life debt. He has saved us from an eternity in hell. He has saved us from the miserable existence of being a slave. And so now we are his servants, bound and yet free. And yet, even though we serve, our God, he he does something more. He raises our heads and he calls us his sons, his children. Just as the father of the prodigal son did, We come to God 
After he's opened our eyes to the state of our misery and our sin, and we come to him with our clothes tattered, with our stomachs empty, with our hearts ready to break, and we say, Heavenly Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But just as in the parable, the father interrupts. He throws his arms around us and he kisses us, his darling children, lost but now found, addicted but now free, and he welcomes us. And he says, quick, clothe him in the best robe, the robe of Christ's righteousness. Quick, put a ring on his finger. Give him the status of a prophet. Give him the status of a priest. Give him the status of a king in my kingdom. Quick, prepare a feast. He will dine at the marriage feast of the Lamb forever in glory. Beloved, this is a hard prayer for us to pray. Your will be done. So often, so often, we would rather that the petition went, my will be done. God, give me all the things that I want. Listen, listen to me instead of to you. But the petition is, your will be done. Or, so often, we would rather the petition went, your will be changed. God, please, change your mind so that my life here is a little easier. Change, change your will for my life so that it includes a little bit of sinful pleasure every now and again. Change your will from desiring holiness, from desiring perfection, to just desiring a good effort. That I'm willing to do. But the petition is, your will be done. We find it hard. We find it hard because we were born in the wrong garden. You were born in the Garden of Eden, and our family resemblance to Adam is something very hard to break away from. But this life, the Christian life, this journey that we are on, is from one garden to the next. From our first father to our savior. From prayers that blame everyone else to prayers for strength to do what is right. From wanting to avoid all suffering and pain and punishment to the moment when we're willing to accept everything that comes to us from God's almighty hand. It's a difficult journey, and not everyone will make it. But we don't walk alone, because through the Spirit, our destination is already there in our heart. For believers, heaven has never been closer. Amen.